hi. Good to see you again. Oof, let me just get out of this conga line. Okay, glad you made it. Oh, you want to know who we're getting to know today? So we're going to be exploring the life of Carol Lombard. She was known as a good time girl, the favorite guest, and Hollywood's most inventive hostess. But will she be ours? And before we get started, Carol cursed Blue Streak. Just in case, you know, a little heads up so you don't have to go looking for any pearls to clutch. So go ahead and grab a cocktail and join the party. Sometimes life can change with just a flip of a coin. That's exactly what happened on the morning of January 16th, 1942. It seems what most people know about Carol is the way she died. Then maybe that she was married to Clark Gable. For someone who was the definition of full of life, remembering her for the way she died seems like the absolute worst way to think of her. Besides, she would positively hate that. Carol Lombard was born Jane Alice Peters from Fort Wayne, Indiana on October 6th, 1908, but she let Hollywood shave off a year once she really got going. She had two older brothers whom she was close with her entire life, but her mother Bess was her BFF. People like to label Carol as a Hoosier, but she moved to California in 1914 when she was like six and thought of herself as a hometown Hollywood girl. When the family moved, they left their dad at home. Here's his entire story. He had an elevator accident and always had chronic headaches, so he basically just became a stranger to Carol. Even at six years old, Carol knew she wanted to be a movie star, or as they were known then, a serial queen. Her idol was Gloria Swanson. One day she saw Gloria walk across the street to Hollywood and Vine, and that was it. Carol knew she just had to become a movie star. At this time, Bess was introduced to numerology and the Baha'i faith. So numerology is exactly what it sounds like. People believe mystical relationships between numbers and coinciding events. Baha'i is like, all religions are cool, let's just be cool together. Which sounds actually pretty nice. By 12 years old, Carol started doing movies. Not continuously, but she gets in the door. Bess is pretty slick and positions herself to become friends with Luella Parsons. When she was a sophomore in high school, she won a little contest and was crowned the Queen of May. There was a man in the crowd who thought his client should meet her. Maybe I listened to too many true crime podcasts, but what the hell is an adult man who is not a teacher doing at a high school in the middle of the day? His client just happened to be Charlie Chaplin. He was looking for a girl to be the lead in his new film, The Gold Rush. He needed a new lead because the original one, Lita Gray, was pregnant with Charlie's child, and she was 15. Since I have the benefit of knowing how Charlie was, I'm already thinking, fabulous, this guy is one of Hollywood's original princes of perversion. Please tell me this doesn't end how I think it might. And I can hear some of you now. Well, it was just different back then. Nope, stop. Because Bess Peters knew what kind of a freak-a-leak Charlie Chaplin was all the way back then and told Carol, do not ever be alone in a room with Charlie, period. Best provided additional protection by accompanying Carol to the meeting, the ultimate cock block. When she was asked about the experience years later, Carol recalled that Charlie didn't even try to hide the fact that he wasn't happy about Best being there. 
I bet he wasn't happy, a little nasty ass. Carol didn't end up getting the job because she was, quote, too pretty. 1924 was a big year for Carol. She signed a one-year contract with Fox for $65 a week. She dropped out of high school and officially changed her name to Carol Lombard. She still ran with the kids from her high school, and they took over the Coconut Grove on Fridays. Carol was the queen of the Charleston, until a faster crowd from MGM rolled up and gave her a run for her money. Joan Crawford was one of, if not the most competitive person in Hollywood. Carol said Joan told her she wasn't going to be satisfied until she reached the very top of movie stardom, whereas Carol told her she just wanted to have some fun. That same year, she was also simultaneously dating Jack Hurst, son of mega publisher William Randolph Hearst, and Bill Ince, son of producer Thomas Ince. For those of you who might not know, Thomas Ince was maybe killed while on Daddy Hearst's yacht, also maybe by Hearst. We'll get to that in a separate party, but remember when Jeffrey Epstein committed quote-unquote suicide last year? This entire incident is just about as sketchy boots as that. There is, of course, no record about what Carol thought of this entire mess. Another big name that wanted to test Carol was John Barrymore. He also had a reputation for being a Lothario since most of his tests didn't involve a camera. He was 44, she was 17. This is already wonderful. When she met with him, Carol controlled the meeting by basically not fangirling all over him like most people did. He ended up really liking her and wanted her for his next movie. But everything was about to change one night in 1926. One of the guys in Carol's Coconut Grove gang got a new Bugatti. Would she like to come for a spin? Duh. So she and Harry Cooper go zipping around town and stopped at a stoplight on a hill. One account says the brakes in the car ahead of them failed and it slid backwards into Harry's car. Another says Harry lost control. Either way, the windshield on Harry's car explodes into a million knives and sliced up Carol's perfect face all to hell. So from the corner of her nose to the right cheekbone was practically minced meat. And literally she was drinking her own blood, but she didn't pass out and she didn't freak out. Harry drove her to the hospital where Bess met them. The doctor said it's not life-threatening, but she will have a large permanent scar on her face. Um, that is life-threatening when you're an actress. So queen of networking, Bess, makes some phone calls and boom, a specialist is on the way to stitch her up. Plastic surgery in LA wasn't quite what it is today. No one's serving you Prosecco while a crew from Bravo films you bitching about the stemware used at last night's party. Carol's operation was four hours long and she had to go through it all without anesthetic. Apparently the muscles could not relax or it would mess up her face even more. Her eyes were taped down for the entire ordeal, which ended up being 18 stitches. The doctor couldn't promise that she would regain muscle control of her face, but for best results, she had to keep her head motionless for a week, and for 10 days, she couldn't move a muscle on her face, except to drink a liquefied food. It shouldn't surprise anyone that Fox Studios was not great to her during this time. They paid for her surgery, but canceled her contract. Later, she told Garson Cannon, another inch, half inch maybe, a turn of my head and my whole fucking career could have been over. During the recovery time, Carol became a fatalist. Any day could be her last, so basically she was like YOLO back in the 1920s. I'm sure a lot of you high energy people stuck inside during this pandemic can relate to her being all cooped up. She took all of that energy and laser focused it on acting. She read biographies of famous actors, different plays, and acted out scenes in her room. When friends visited her, she was the one boosting their confidence about the possibility of her lost career. 
She said, isn't it better to have a scar on your face than on your soul? By autumn, she was back dancing at the Coconut Grove. That's where she met Max Sennett, who was looking for girls to be in his bathing beauty comedy reels. She had no idea if she was even funny, but just wanted someone to please take a chance on her. Gloria Swanson had started with Mac, so why shouldn't Carol follow in her idol's footsteps? Mac didn't care that she had a little scar on her face, but he did tell her she needed to gain some weight, quote, especially in the tits. Carol was paired with Madeline Field, whom she dubbed Fieldsy. Fieldsy was six feet tall, 250 pounds, and she was also very well-read and sophisticated. Carol's entire family loved her, and she became a major influence on Carol. Fieldsy kind of became sort of a stage mom to Carol, telling her how much money she should be making, convincing her that she was star material, and pushing her towards asking for better parts. I love Fieldsy. Her first day on set, Carol was filming a scene on the beach with the other bathing beauties, and she sunburned so bad, she couldn't even work the next day. As a fellow porcelain princess, I do not know how she even lasted a day. Sunscreen wasn't invented until 1938, so without a hat or umbrella, she was literally toast. Carol was known by fans as the pretty bathing beauty, and Mac loved the combination of Carol and Fieldsy, thinking they could be a female Laurel and Hardy. Things were going pretty great for Senate until the jazz singer. I don't need to tell you, that was the death knell for silent films. Her mom suggested that Carol go speak with the owner of Pathé about her career. The owner is Joe Kennedy. Yes, daddy of JFK, and just like his son, he couldn't keep it in his pants either. Joe had lured Gloria Swanson away from Paramount and had a torrid affair with her, all while taking her money. Really classy guy. Joe likes how direct Carol is, but isn't sure if she can speak like an actress. To which she says, what do you think I'm speaking to you now? Then he told her she needs to lose 20 pounds, to which she said, you're not so slim yourself, you could lose at least 20 pounds. Joe had the studio masseuse slap off 20 pounds. And I'm gonna call BS on that because if massages made me lose pounds, I would not even have a gym membership ever again. Carol wasn't a prude, but she was really getting sick and tired of men at Pathé grabbing her. She had heard stories about silent film star Mae Murray, who cussed out anybody she didn't like touching her. So one day, Carol comes home from the studio and she is furious. She told her brothers to teach her every single dirty word they knew and exactly how to use them. She used her language as a self-defense. Her blue talk was so legendary that her nickname was the Profane Angel. Apparently it did the trick and would quote, get men to speak to her on their level. What level is that? I have no idea. She worked on Cecil B. DeMille's first talkie, Dynamite, and it did not go very well. He yelled, this is not a Keystone comedy to her when she didn't know her lines. She had a pretty good reason. Well, I mean, I guess I understand it. She was having her first fling. She kind of had to be private because this man was super secretive, super rich, and a playboy. Although he wasn't married, he was still romantically linked to actress Billy Dove. If you guessed Howard Hughes, gold star for you. This guy must have had a platinum prick because everybody wanted him. And for being a hypochondriac, you'd think he would be worried about STDs, but apparently not. He ended up losing interest in Carol, who said she would never lose her equilibrium over a man again. I like that. Most 20-somethings would not be that mature during their first breakup. During this time period, she gets really smart and starts doing a ton of publicity for herself. Like interviews saying she's about to be in such and such picture, even though she really wasn't. The studios didn't mind because she would always say their name, therefore giving them free publicity. And sometimes she actually would get cast in the role because they figured, why not? 
The publicity men loved her because she was very pally with them and gave them tons of good little tidbits to print, and sometimes things they couldn't. She was very open about not wearing a bra and not wearing underwear. She told them, maybe I would if I had anything worth covering up. She may have been self-deprecating, but none of the stars from the 1930s were busty. Okay, maybe Mae West, but that's kind of it. It's really hard to have big old wugga-juggas and wear those silky slinky gowns. One of the first talkies she does is Big News with Gregory LaCava. She and Greg thought the script was god-awful. I'm not sure if Greg can be called the inventor of the fast speak Carol's known for, but he told her this. When something stinks, you try to do anything that will distract people from the smell. If we rattle the dialogue real fast, people won't be able to reflect on how rotten it is. And even if it isn't very exciting, you can pinch your voices a little higher, and they'll think it's exciting. I guess the main thing is to be busy all the time, just keep moving, stand still, and the picture might die. All of that is Carol, even in the good roles. As I previously mentioned, Bess was super into numerology. The number three is going to start popping up a lot. I've been told that three means creative self-expression and optimism. Bess seems to think three was a negative number, and as it specifically relates to Carol, I would tend to agree. We could turn this into a drinking game. Every time you hear a three sequence in Carol's life, have a drink. Depending on what you're drinking, you may or may not end up remembering this podcast, so just a heads up. In just a short period of time, Carol gets fired by DeMille, dumped by Howard Hughes, and then her contract wasn't picked up with Pathé. That would be three. She stormed past a secretary and into Joe Kennedy's office to confront him about this. He feeds her some BS about how money was tight and they couldn't keep her because of financial reasons. The real story is that they had just signed Constance Bennett, and she didn't want anyone on the lot who looked like her. So Carol got the axe. She ended up taking the entire wardrobe department to the Brown Derby for steak dinner. They got so shrammered that they were asked to leave as soon as the bill was paid. Speaking of, let me grab another little tiny triple, and I'll be right back. Much better. So where were we? Alright, so Carol did not get her contract renewed with Pathé. She freelanced for a while and became buddy-buddy with B.P. Schulberg's new assistant, a guy named David O. Selznick over at Paramount. He told them if they didn't snap her up, somebody would. So they did. In 1930, she signed a seven-year contract at $3.75 a week with options for more cash. She became extremely close with Ernst Lubitsch, who loved her mom because he was into numerology as well. Then she and Preston Sturgis had a fling, and he gossiped about it, and so she just shut the whole thing down. He said the experience taught him a good lesson, and they both stayed really good friends the rest of their lives. Sturgis, Lubitsch, come on. She doesn't even know it, but she's setting herself up for screwball glory. Carol said she also became pals with Noel Coward, and she clearly had no gaydar because she had a mad crush on him. He said he could not respond to her physically. You, no kidding. Carol is finally becoming a leading lady, and she is the CEO of Hashtag Boss Babe. She wakes up at 6 a.m. six days a week. She does her own hair. She does her own makeup. Doesn't even have a trailer on the set because she just wants to hang out with the crew. She's cool like that. Her image is a concoction of Marlena Dietrich and Kay Francis, and she tries to make being filmed with orchids in her hair a thing. She did not make Fetch happen on that one. She filmed two movies in 1931 with William Powell. His image was that of a cultured, sophisticated man about town. He wasn't the megastar that he was destined to become yet, but he was one of the few stars who could float through all the levels of stardom while socializing. 
He and his two other pals, Ronald Coleman and Richard Barthelmus, made up their own little Three Musketeers. Carol was already super into William by the time they started filming their next movie, so they started having a full-blown romance. He said he had never met a girl like her and figured he never would again, so he pulled out all the stops. Tuxedos, limousines, smart parties, dinner and dancing. Also, there was a sizable age difference. She was 23, he was 40. So the press thinks she's a gold digger, and his stuffy friends think she's a social climber. Carol was outdoorsy, literally ran everywhere, and loved jazz. William liked classical music, and although he's taken her out and about while he's wooing her, he really prefers just staying home. The only thing they have in common is that they like the same scotch. So with all of these things going for them, of course marriage is the next logical step. Come on, guys. The wedding was at Carol's house on Rexford Drive. It happened on June 26, 1931. Luella Parsons, who was not invited, showed up for the reception. Her husband, Docky, was a drunk. He started yammering on and on about some tales, so the newlyweds just slipped out the back door. They honeymooned in Hawaii, where she got toxic poisoning, then malaria. That came back when she started working again, so this is just a super romantic trip. And speaking of health things, Carol seemed to catch the cold a lot. She had chronic anemia and pleurisy, which is inflammation of lung tissue. And of course, every time she misses work for one of these reasons, the press thinks she's pregnant. No, she never was. The best person that came into Carol's life because of her relationship with Powell was Myron Selznick. He was William's agent and Carol quickly became Myron's favorite client. He vowed to make her the best paid dame in town and told her to turn down anything she didn't like. Myron told the higher ups at Paramount, if the screenwriters paid as much attention to Carol's attributes as the customers did, she would have the screen's wittiest dialogue. Carol took it upon herself to make sure everyone was paying attention to her attributes. The best thing about her movies during this time were the fashions. That's because she became the favorite of another higher up, Travis Banton. He was the head of Paramount's costume department. He said she was like a greyhound or Arabian horse. Throw a bolt of material on Carol and any way it hits her, she'll look great. What is with the old Hollywood people comparing others to horses? Last week, LB did that to Desi. I don't really understand the horses thing. His assistant at the time was Edith Head, who understood that dress fittings lasted sometimes eight to 10 hours. And most actresses really hated it. Not Carol. Edith said Carol was patience itself. She could turn anything, even a dress fitting, into some kind of a party. Getting loaned out was part of the deal if you had a contract, and Carol got loaned out to Columbia Pictures in 1932. It was known as Poverty Row, basically where you would send your stars if they were getting too big for their britches at their home studio. Harry Cohen allegedly had the vilest tongue in Hollywood. He really gave off a Harvey Weinstein vibe. When Carol reported for her first day, he told her, your hair's too white, you look like a whore. She responded with, I'm sure you know what a whore looks like if anyone does. He was a little taken aback by her remark, but like a true piece of shit that he was, he tried to make the move on her. She said, look, Mr. Cohen, I've agreed to be in your shitty little picture, but fucking you is not part of the deal. Supposedly that straightened him right up and he said, well, that don't mean you can't call me Harry. Carol Lombard is the only woman, and maybe even the only person in Hollywood, who after that, Harry Cohen was eating out of her hand. Therefore, her time at Columbia was not the prison sentence most stars considered it to be. 
She got the largest dressing room on that lot and started a tradition of holding dressing room parties. When she returned to Paramount, she does her one and only film with Clark Gable. They get along fine, but Carol's a married lady and says thanks but no thanks to any pass Gable tried to make. Apparently a few years prior to this, Bess had gone to inquire about acting lessons for Carol from Gable's first wife, Josephine Dillon. There was a 17-year difference between them and Bess thought he was Josephine's son. Yikes. Surprise, surprise, things are not going great at home. She gets sent home twice from work in 1932 because she apparently was having nervous breakdowns. William's popularity is in a slump and Carol commented to an interviewer about it. I'm lazy. You'd never believe how lazy I really am. And damn it, so is Bill. My being lazy doesn't bother him, but the fact that he's that way makes me restless and angry at myself. Bill never drives me and someone he has to. She had to go to Reno for a divorce, which took all of six minutes to get. She asked for no alimony and charged him with extreme cruelty because he used foul language. We all know that's just, come on now. She said the marriage was a waste of time, his and mine. Her biggest pet peeve was wasting her time. Despite that, they stayed very, very good friends for the rest of her life. Carol got a house of her own. It's gonna be rare that I say this, but the house is still standing today. And it's located on Hollywood Boulevard. This is the house that was completely decorated by Billy Haynes. We might look into having him at a party later on, so for this story's purposes, he was the first openly gay star in Hollywood, got fired because of that, and ended up doing interior design. Carol was his first paying client, kind of. Billy refused payment because he knew if people liked what he did with her place, he could write his own ticket from then on. I wish there were color photos of the interior of this house because, oh my gosh, it sounds so fabulous. Her drawing room was six different shades of blue velvet. Her bedroom was plum satin with mirrors on either side of the bed. Totally different from the all-white house he had recently done for his pal Joan Crawford. Motion Picture Magazine said of the house, Its femininity is so unmistakable that your first glance tells you that it's occupied by a single woman. A woman, moreover, who has no intention of marrying. Whatever, Motion Picture Magazine, I'm ready to move in right now. Since I can't, there are some photos over on my Instagram account, at Hollywood Party Podcast, for you to drool over. She had Fieldsy move in. Fieldsy had become her secretary, which was perfect. She was interested in the business side of show business, just not the performing aspect any longer, so no one's gonna screw around with a six-foot-tall lady. It was the perfect job for Fieldsy. And because most movie studios back then did not know what to do with a beautiful woman who was also funny, Paramount kept giving her crappy scripts. It was so bad that she coined the most used on-set line, who do I have to screw to get off this picture? Instead of fighting with the front office, she gets all dolled up and heads over to see our little buddy, Harry Cohen. Did he maybe have something that she could do? He was so used to begging other studios for their stars. This is great. Hell yeah, he tells her. There's something about to go into production, and if she signs on, he'll pour some more money into it. She says, shithead, I want you to help my career, not kill it. God, I wish I could talk to my managers like that. They finally agree on a project, and she devises a plan. She had Harry call Paramount and ask them, hey, could I use Miriam Hopkins? They laugh and said, yeah, we're just going to give you Carol instead. Genius. That's exactly what she wanted. So Harry Cohen can't get her on It Happened One Night, but he hooks it up and gets her as the lead on 20th Century. 
She finally gets teamed up with John Barrymore, who has really hit the bottle after his third wife left him, and he does not remember her from eight years ago. Barrymore set the tempo for the film, and Carol kept up. It wasn't a commercial hit, because it played against It Happened One Night's second run, and it was kind of just too sophisticated for the public. Now it is like a masterpiece. One of the most surprising things to come out of this movie is the quote from The Great Profile. Carol Lombard is probably the greatest actress I have ever worked with. As John Barrymore's career slows down, he would drop the probably from that statement. So, huge compliment from him. In between William Powell and Clark Gable, Carol has one very serious relationship with a guy named Russ Columbo. Gable is the most talked about of the three of her big loves, but her brief relationship with Russ is really worth looking into. He was a violin prodigy, had a velvety singing voice, he even replaced Bing Crosby and Gust Arnheim's band, and he also had a reputation for being a real-life Valentino. Carol was at the Coconut Grove on a date with Robert Riskin when she saw Russ performing. Russ saw her too, and Robert saw Russ see Carol. Robert told Carol she should be expecting roses from Russ the following day, and he was correct. A dozen yellow roses show up on her doorstep the next day. Russ worshipped her. He was always buying her flowers and jewelry, and she ate it up. What girl wouldn't like that? He wanted to marry her, but Carol was like, hey, let's just keep it light. Russ was Italian and Catholic, and Carol knew his family would not be into her Baha'i faith. But he kept after it, and he said his family didn't care, although he never mentioned his proposal to Mama Colombo. Russ was extremely, let's just say passionate, but he was not a great intellect. Carol lived five minutes away from William Powell and started seeing him again. I'm not saying any of these actions are smart. She and Russ are 26. 26 year olds do stupid ass stuff like this. I do know Fieldsy was not a fan. She answered the door one night and told Russ he should just be glad Carol loved him physically and that should be enough for him. If a best friend doesn't like you, good luck, buddy. Russ noticed something was up and did what any reasonable person would do. He moved into a house right in between Carol and William's houses. Oh yeah. Then he started stalking her. Trench coat, fedora, little notepad to scribble all the little things he's seeing, everything. He even noted in his journal on February 5th, 1934, that Carol slept at Williams. Why she kept going back to Russ, I can only imagine. Besides him being a little creep dog, he was running with some shady characters who were demanding he give them a portion of a salary. The mob. Carol said this about their relationship. I believe everything that happens is determined by an inflexible fate. On the night of September 2nd, 1934, fate stepped in. Carol and Bess were relaxing in Lake Arrowhead when Carol got a call that there had been an accident. Russ was over at his friend Lansing Brown's house. They were looking at antique handguns. Lansing didn't think it was loaded. He struck a match. The pistol discharged. The bullet hit a piece of furniture, then ricocheted into Russ's right eye, lodging in his brain. If the bullet had hit him anywhere else on his body, it would not have been fatal because it was traveling at such a low velocity. But it was fate, I suppose. Carol hated mourning. She said if she mourned all of her pals that were taken young, she'd forever be in black. She only gave one interview afterwards and said she thought they would eventually have married, but truly felt like his number was up and had it not been with a bullet, 
He would have gone some other way. She planned his funeral and purchased a plot directly underneath him at the Great Mausoleum at Forest Lawn Glendale. Carol took the first half of 1935 off and made partying her business. She wanted to be cast as the fun party girl, so she became the hostess with the mostess. If Carol liked you, you got invited. She mixed stars with carpenters and painters and banned all shop talk. The parties were meant to be fun only. Anyone who can afford to buy booze can give a party, she said, but it doesn't guarantee fun. She was a big fan of theme parties. One time, she moved out all of her furniture and replaced them with bales of hay for a farm party. One guy got so drunk, he stripped down naked and literally rolled in the hay. I think we all know that guy. She had a Roman banquet. Everyone ate on the floor and had to wear togas. Apparently, Luella Parsons' husband passed out with his dong out, and Carol quipped, what's that, Luella's column? And after one of her friends recovered from an ailment, she threw a hospital party. Everyone had white iron beds with their names on charts at the footboard. Dinner was on an operating table and she wanted everyone to change into hospital gowns with their asses out. That last part did not really take on. By the end of this, she was named the foremost hostess in the Hollywood social oral. This is exactly what she wanted. Before she went back to work, she threw one last epic party. She rented out the entire Venice Beach Pier. Yeah, it cost a shit ton, but you gotta go out with the bang, right? She invited hundreds of people. Everyone was in their play clothes. It was like renting out Disneyland. Everyone was there to have a ball. Cesar Romero cracked an ankle spinning in a barrel. Claudette Colbert left black and blue. They're spinning in the whirly gig. Errol Flynn spent the entire time in the tunnel of love with a rotation of girls because he was a hoe. We all know this. From then on, all massive parties were dubbed Carol Lombard parties, and the hosts would still call her for party ideas. When she returned to work, it was for Hands Across the Table, the first of four pictures she would do with Fred McMurray. Lubitsch sat in on the rehearsals. He was that committed to reinventing Carol as the top screwball comedian. The Lubitsch touch worked. She had solo billing. Her thing was becoming unglued during mounting complications of a situation and then exploding like a volcano. Right after that, William Powell says he'll only agree to a loan out for my man Godfrey if Carol co-stars with him. Right before they start filming, Carol agrees to help out with the annual Mayfair Ball. This ball started around the same time as the first Oscars and, like the Oscars, were also created by the studio heads. This was because they were pissed at the snobby, waspy, racist clubs in Pasadena who wouldn't let them join, so they invented their own exclusive club. Wouldn't you say that deciding who becomes a movie star is exclusive enough? I guess not. Anywho, the boss's wives needed Carol because she's got all the good intel on Hollywood marriages. Like, do we send the invitation for Clark Gable to his wife, Rhea, or to him at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel? Yeah, that marriage is going super great. The ball was held at Victor Hugo's restaurant in Beverly Hills. This place, you have to see it. There's a garden inside with a real waterfall. It's super cute. And you know what I'm going to say? It's not there anymore. It was remodeled by the same architect in the 1940s. At that time, it became Adrian's storefront, then Elaine Bryant, then it was torn down. Currently, it seems to be some kind of an overpriced Greek restaurant, so who knows how long that will last. Cesar Romero was her date, but she was so busy being a hostess that they kind of just lost track of each other. 
Carol did an all-white motif. Yeah, you guys thought Puff Daddy was the first one to do white party? No, this is Carol's deal. Everybody showed up in white except for Norma Shearer, who wore a scarlet gown. This is basically the plot of Jezebel. Carol was beyond livid about that. Clark showed up a little late and he's already buzzed, pulls her aside and talks her out of confronting Norma because she really just wants to rip her a new one. Maybe they went and had a quickie, I don't really know, but she definitely had a fun time with Clark instead of with her own date. While she's making My Man Godfrey, Donald Ogden Stewart threw a nervous breakdown ball. Okay, I understand that today this sort of theme would be frowned upon, but it happened, so let me at least tell you about it. It was ultra formal, like tiaras formal. Carol showed up late on purpose. She arrived in an ambulance and was carried in on a stretcher. Apparently, Clark thought that was fantastic. And that was it for him. He was all in on her. Looks-wise, they are the perfect Hollywood couple. Tall, handsome dude with a gorgeous blonde. Clark loved that he could just have fun with Carol and joke around. Most of the photos are of them cracking each other up. Although, I think Carol was the more funny of the two. She knew Clark wasn't marriage material at that point in time. I mean, he's actively cheating on his wife with her. What would make her think such a thing? So like most 20-somethings, Carol thinks, I can change him, but I need to do it without him knowing, so I'll make it seem like I'm changing myself. So she takes up hunting and is a better shot than him. She sold her Star Sapphire collection to buy a house in a more discreet location. She also starts distancing herself from her gay friends because Clark wasn't comfortable around them. That's a whole different story for another party, but you just don't ditch your friends, dude, even if it is for the King of Hollywood. While Carol is working on becoming indispensable to Clark, her agent Myron is fulfilling his promise to make her the highest paid star in Hollywood. He negotiated a deal with Paramount and got her $450,000 a year. Then, Myron negotiated with his brother David for four pictures at $200,000 a pop. Carol called David and said, Hey, look, I'll make, I'll make you a deal. I'll take $175,000 instead, because she really wanted to play Scarlet and Gone with the Wind. I know that sounds laughable, because every single woman wanted to play her. Actually, this was Carol's plan. She wanted to get Gone with the Wind, win an Oscar to match Clark's, then quit and have babies. That doesn't sound like a bad plan, it's pretty freaking awesome. And David didn't actually rule her out because she was a bad actress or not right for it. He was afraid she and Gable would split up afterwards and taint the entire romantic aura around the movie. In between all of this, she's actually nominated for an Oscar, but Louise Rayner won for The Great Ziegfeld. Why? I do not know, but it happened. And after all that money talk, if you're wondering, yes, Clark and Carol fought about money. He thought she was too generous, she was always giving gifts to the crew when she did a film. He, on the other hand, never did that and did not tip. He was beyond tight. Let me take a minute and give you a tiny bit of information about Clark Gable, for those of you who might not know him. Both of his wives, before Carol, were 17 years older than him. And if you're thinking, wow, this guy must have mommy issues, you would be correct. His mother died when he was 10 months old, and he was an only child. His first wife, Josephine, paid for his glow-up. Invisalign was not a thing in the 20s, so he got dentures. It is a popular opinion that he had bad breath because of them. Look, 99% of people were smoking back then, and I have never smelled any smoker's breath and thought, hmm, 
That is refreshing. So it wasn't just him walking around back then with bad breath. It was everyone. Valentino was the first big heartthrob in Hollywood. Then there was Gable, and he just kicked the doors down and dominated for years. He was numero uno, hot stuff on the Metro lot. He was tall, muscular, used to be a wildcatter in the oil field, so he was believable in westerns, and looked really good in a tuxedo. There's a scene in Gone with the Wind where we are introduced to Rhett Butler, and the camera swoops in on him like a hawk, as though he's the only person in the room. Apparently, that's what it was like when he showed up. He was just so damn charismatic that everybody was drawn to him, hence his title of The King. Since we're talking Gone with the Wind, that was his ticket to getting divorced. It was part of the deal when MGM loaned him to Selznick. Carolyn Clark got married in Kingman, Arizona on March 29, 1939. Then they moved into a ranch in Encino. Again, with the celebrities, they're just like us, shoveling horse poo. The only time the Gables actually farmed was for the camera. They totally had farmers on the property to take care of everything. It was so fake. Now that Carol's personal life is finally sorted out, she really takes a hold of her career. She negotiated four films for $150,000 each with RKO all by herself. Myron was livid that she didn't let him handle it, to which she said, fuck off, that's the easiest $60,000 you've ever made. Eventually, she went to court to end her business relationship with Myron, which is a shame because they worked so well together. He used this incident as an excuse to drown himself in booze and was dead by the time he was 45 in 1944. Another powerful man who thought a lot of Carol was Orson Welles. He really tried to get her to join his Mercury Theater group. It didn't work out, and he ended up making Citizen Kane instead of the picture he wanted to do with her. So, good, I guess? By now, she's making more than her male co-stars, and she really gets interested in the possibility of producing. She knows all the little ins and outs of what it takes to make a good picture. Garson Cannon said she was the best producer in town since Thalberg. So it's 1941, and the honeymoon is over at Casa de Gable. She can't get pregnant, and it's not for lack of trying. Walter Winchell, remember that chode from last week? He reports Clark went hunting all alone while Carol stayed home. So obviously, feud, right? Carol said when Clark heard that, he smashed the radio with a rock. Winchell is one of the most punchable people from all Hollywood, in my opinion. Maybe that little incident was a rumor, but Carol did have worries of her own. Clark had been doing movies with Hedy Lamarr and Lana Turner. Both those gals are pretty hot. Not that Carol isn't, but she, we, everybody knows Clark does not know how to keep it in his pants. She puts their ranch up for sale, then yanks it off the market quickly, and then the war happens. She gets super patriotic and finally gets to do a film with her pal Lubitsch. To Be or Not To Be, which is a war movie, it's kind of super cool. She's pumped and goes on a war bond selling tour back east. Clark won't go with her because he's not comfortable in front of large crowds. Or so he says. Carol calls BS and is so mad, she doesn't even tell him goodbye. Carol, Bess, and Otto Winkler, he worked for MGM and was Clark's right-hand man, went on the trip back to Indiana. The day before the trip, Otto was jolted awake and was dripping with sweat. He told his wife, if I get on a plane during this trip, I'm not coming back. They were taking a train the entire time, so this shouldn't have even been on his mind. Every stop along the way, Carol is a smash. Most people are just stoked to see a real-life, fast-walking, fast-talking movie star, and she packs them in, giving pump-up speeches that would make locker room coaches during halftime wish they could command the room like her. She insists on only giving autographs to people who buy war bonds. 
She ended up selling $2 million in less than 24 hours. Of course, she was record-breaking and sold the most amount of war bonds ever. Why would we expect anything less from her? Record-breaker or not, Lana Turner is still on her mind. She tells Otto to book a flight back home. Bess doesn't want to fly either, so it's two against one. There's a big argument. And Carol says, okay, heads train, tails plane. Tails it is. They have to stop in Las Vegas and refuel. Bess is getting really nervous. She's well aware there are three of them on flight three, and Carol is 33 years old. Later that night, Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling, MGM's fixers, show up at the Gable home. They weren't sure if they could fix the problem this time. The plane crashed, but a crew was going up the mountain to look for survivors. Now, Clark is sorry for cheating. Why couldn't he get it together? On the way to Vegas, he vows to change. He's going to make things totally different when Carol comes home. Eddie climbed up the mountain with the search party. Clark, who was a lifelong smoker, couldn't make it all the way up. Spencer Tracy drove out to Vegas with three bottles of whiskey to keep Clark company while Eddie was tasked with identifying Carol. Back in LA, Clark did not lay her to rest next to Russ. He bought three plots for himself, Carol, and Bess. Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling did work their magic on the Gable legend. He became a young widower, then joined the Air Force. Carol would forever be the love of his life. Something else to consider with the Russ and Carol story. After she died, her brothers hated Clark and wanted to damage some of the PR work done by Mannix and Strickling. So this quote to a Life magazine reporter started showing up everywhere. It says that Carol would call Russ this great love of her life, to which the reporter said, of course you mean other than Gable. No, she said, Russ Colombo was the great love of my life. And that is very definitely off the record. I don't know how true that actually is. After knowing how possessive Russ was, I really can't believe she was as in love with him as he was with her. 30 years later, when a biography is finally done on Carol, all of her friends are happy to speak about Carol and Russ, but not one of them wanted to talk about her relationship with Clark. I get it. Your pal isn't around anymore because her husband was cheating. I don't think I'd have anything positive to say either. If things were different, I bet she probably could have taken a crack at producing. If anyone could have back then, it was her. And when I look at screwball comedies that came after Carol, I think, damn, what would that have been like with her in it? I never dreamed that anyone but Rosalind Russell could or should play anti-Mame. Until I thought about who Mame was. A lovable, high society eccentric. That is Carol to a T. Couldn't you just see her buzzing around with that fabulous Ori Kelly wardrobe? She would have been great in that role. It seems that every star who interacted with Carol said the same thing. Hollywood was never as fun after she left. And that's the legacy you should think of when you think of her. Carol was the party. I think that statement alone answers if she'll be coming to our party. So we have Desi, a musician. I know he was more than that, but musician. Oh, and fun fact, he and Carol were neighbors. And now we've got the life of the party. We're going places, guys. Next week, I'll be looking at a man who was also famous for his parties, but who did not like Carol. Are we even going to like this guy after that? Come back next week to find out. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. 
If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or whatever you use to listen. See you next week. Hollywood.